0: Now, we know Isaiah as uh, the prophet from many, many years ago. But of course, uh, to his contemporaries, he was a preacher. Uh, And in many ways, he served the function of a traveling evangelist and a pastor. And obviously, when he was ministering to his contemporaries, he was speaking to them about the matters which concerned them at that present time. But interestingly, as we read through Isaiah, Isaiah very frequently talks about that day, which is a distant future day when God will show His power. And from Isaiah's perspective, that day was so far in the future that none of his contemporaries, and not even himself, had any hope of witnessing that day. And it makes you wonder, what good is it if you are living in Israel, facing a national disaster, politically, spiritually, what good does it do you to hear a preacher, time to time, (laughs) Seems to lose track of where he is and begins to wax eloquently about far distant future day that you have no hope ever of witnessing or benefiting from. It is puzzling, but in fact, when we go to the New Testament book of 1 Peter, this is how Peter reflects upon the ministry of the Old Testament prophets, and this is what he says. In First Peter chapter one, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. In other words, there is an important component of the Old Testament prophets' ministry that even as they were serving the needs of their contemporaries, dealing with their very present concerns, there was a component in their ministry that was uh, directed to and targeting not their contemporary people but the believers who will come and hear their words in the future. And so Peter says that, that as the Old Testament prophets considered what they were doing, it was revealed to them that they were not simply addressing the needs of their time and their place but they were declaring the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. And doing so, Isaiah communicated to his contemporaries that their ultimate hope lies with the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. And Isaiah and other Old Testament prophets pointed their hearts and their thoughts beyond their present time and their need of the moment to fix their hope on what Jesus will do in the future. And because he has done that, Isaiah's words have the same effect upon us. Just as Isaiah's words reached uh, beyond his own time to ours, Isaiah's words still reach beyond our time and point us toward to that day when God will bring his work to completion and in this, he encourages us. Regardless of the number of years between now and then, and regardless of the opposition that stand before us and before God, in that day, God will complete his work with glory and with power. And so, Isaiah directs his people's eyes and our eyes this morning to the war to end all wars. The war to end all wars. And so this chapter begins, out, uh, begins by saying, In that day, the Lord with his hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan. Now, Leviathan is one of those things from the Bible that has come into our culture, even if most people do no longer realize the connection in the Bible or to the Bible, uh, Leviathan has sort of an ominous feel to it. It's, it's the title of many horror movies, it's the character in many apocalyptic scenarios. Uh, but it comes from the Bible, and what's interesting is that outside of Isaiah 27, Leviathan is mentioned only four times in the whole Bible. Uh, The first time is in Psalm 74, and again in Psalm 104, the word Leviathan uh, refers to some unknown great ocean creature. Uh, We have no way of knowing exactly to what uh, animal or ocean creature it referred to, but it was obviously and undeniably powerful. Uh, to strike a sense of awe and fear into the hearts of everyone who witnessed it. Uh, Then it's mentioned in Job chapter 3. This is where Job, after having uh, begun to suffer great many trials in life, he calls upon Leviathan to curse the day of his birth. And then in Job 41, this is where God, at last, interrogates Job Because all throughout the book of Job, Job had increasingly begun to say, God, you have done me wrong. And then God interrogates Job in chapter 41. Can you tame the great Leviathan? Can you put a hook through its nose? And there, it it reads like a description of a great Nile crocodile. Point being, Leviathan... um, It's such a fierce and powerful creature that no man can can tame. But to God, it's an easy plaything. And God can easily master it. And because Leviathan once referred to some, to us unknown, great, fearful creature, it becomes symbolic. And when the scripture talks about great spiritual evil, spiritual powers that are wicked, And harmful, Leviathan becomes the the symbol and metaphor for that spiritual harm, danger, and enemy. And the point is this: as Isaiah discusses God's victory on that day, and as Isaiah declares God's victory over Leviathan, Leviathan here stands for uh, Satan and his kingdom. And his works. And the point is that no human can match Leviathan in strength, but it is no match for God's power. Notice the three attributes of the Lord's sword His sword is hard, great, and strong. And those three attributes match and answer Leviathan's three characteristics. Leviathan is one, he is the fleeing serpent. Second, he is a twisting serpent. And third, he is the dragon that is in the sea. And Isaiah is telling us that the serpent, the great enemy of God and of his people, Satan, the serpent is not so swift that he can flee from the Lord's hard sword. And the serpent may twist and coil ready to strike. And that's the imagery there. But against the Lord's great sword, the serpent's fangs have no power. And the serpent may be the dragon that is in the sea. And for the Jewish people, the sea was traditionally a place of danger, uh, a, a place of chaos where people go to die. Of course, you remember the Jewish people, their agrarian culture. Uh, they are not seafaring people. They are not sailors. So for, to them, the sea was a place of danger, risk, and death. And so, the serpent may be the dragon that is in the sea, but even so, the Lord's strong sword will rule over that chaos, that threat, that death. Now, the question to ask is, why did Isaiah's contemporaries need to know this. Uh, as a matter of fact, why do we need to know this? If you remember from last week, from Isaiah chapter 26, uh, we talked about how there are two cities, the falling city and the enduring city. People who live in the falling city, they, they uh, have rejected God as their wisdom, as their, as their maker, as their Lord. And they are trying to uh, save themselves by their own resources, by their own strength, by their own cleverness. The people of the enduring city, they find their safety and peace not in their own strength, but in God who protects them. And so if you notice, even in this uh, chapter 27, it talks about a city that becomes a ruin where animals graze, and eventually uh, every tree is dried up and it's burned. It's a, a city in desolation, a city that is in ruins. And that is the picture of the falling city. And Isaiah is saying that falling city will fall because the Lord will judge the serpent. You see, the people of the falling city have... Uh, taken the serpent as the ruler, and have joined in the serpent's rebellion against God. And one day, when that day comes, God will conquer. He will judge and destroy the serpent, and all that belongs to the serpent, his city, his people, will fall. And this is Isaiah's way of telling his contemporaries and even us, that much of the hardship and difficulties that they experience is not just because the way things turned out at random. Much of difficulties that they have experienced, the hardships that they have lived through, even the sins over which they have stumbled this is a part of being or living in, in a spiritual warfare. And as long as the spiritual war continues on, our lives will be filled with hardship and conflict until that day when God wages the war to end all wars. So this is Isaiah reminding his people and telling us, uh, don't you forget that there is spiritual war happening right now. Don't you forget that we are in fierce war and battle. But one day, God is going to wage the war that ends all wars. When that happens, God's people become fruitful. God's people become fruitful. Notice verse 2. In that day, a pleasant vineyard, sing of it. Now, this is the third time that Isaiah has compared Israel to a vineyard. If you remember, uh, he did it first back in chapter 3, where Isaiah compared Israel as a bad vineyard. That has been ruined by bad rulers. And because Israel is ruled by wicked rulers, uh, Israel is no longer able to produce good fruit. And the second time Isaiah compared Israel to a vineyard was in chapter 5. There, Isaiah says that despite the Lord's care and provision, Israel, the vineyard, produced only bad fruit Instead of the fruit that God desired, the fruit of justice, righteousness, godliness, and purity, But there was corruption, wickedness. And so twice before, Isaiah has compared Israel to be the bad vineyard that bears bad fruit. Israel's sins made her unfruitful. But now, in chapter 27, now God calls Israel a pleasant vineyard, a fruitful vineyard. How? How? How does a bad, uh, unfruitful vineyard become a good, pleasant, fruitful vineyard? And the answer is, because of God's commitment and grace. And so we read, I, the Lord, am its keeper. Every uh, moment I water it, lest anyone punish it. I keep it night and day. You see, Israel becomes fruitful because God is preserving, God is nourishing, and God is protecting her night and day. And then he adds, I have no wrath. Now think about what a remarkable, startling thing that is. How is God able to say to this sinful nation, This rebellious nation, this nation that has rejected and persecuted every prophet sent to her, how is God able to say, I have no wrath? Now, if you remember also, if you read uh, Romans, the book of Romans, it becomes really clear very quickly that, God's wrath against sinners exactly the problem that we have to deal with. God is holy, and His wrath is deserved and just and necessary towards sinners. And so how is it that God, in Isaiah 27, He says, I have no wrath. Would that I had thorns and briars to battle, I would march against them, and I would burn them up together. God has no wrath for his people. Because what we are seeing here is that even though the Lord chastised his people, his most strict discipline was immeasurably milder than how he treats the thorns and the briars. The thorns and the briars, the weed. Uh, who, that symbolize the people who remain unrepentant, who will not seek God for peace. That is to say, God's discipline, even though it is painful for the moment, has a productive design. It makes us fruitful. And even if it seems as though God indulges the unrepentant. Even if for the time being, it seems as though that people get away with murder. That God doesn't seem to hold the sinners accountable or bring their sins to a judgment. It is merely judgment delayed. And that's what we need to recognize, that even with the most painful providence with which God disciplined Israel. It was done with grace, and it was done in full view of what he would accomplish in his own son, who would bear the sins of his people, and take away his wrath. So everything that God does towards his people is done in in full view of what Jesus will come and do for his people. And it is that grace that takes away God's wrath, and it is that grace that makes Israel fruitful. So chapter 27, verse 9, Therefore, by this By this, the guilt of Jacob will be atoned for. What does he mean by this? What is this that takes away uh, Jacob's guilt? Look at verse 7. Has he struck them as he struck those who struck them? Meaning, again, even though God has disciplined Israel, and even though it was a very painful discipline, has he ever disciplined Israel the way that he is going to bring the Gentile sins to account? And the answer is no. Just the way that he says, I have no wrath. Oh, would that there were thorns and briars, then I would burn them up. God has always treated his people with pity, compassion, and restraint that he does not show Toward those who do not seek him. And it is that work of God that bears good fruit. And he says, this will be the full fruit of the removal of his sin. When he makes all the stones of the altars like chalk stones crushed to pieces. Now that's a bit of a cryptic statement. And it doesn't help the fact that in the ESV it says all the stones of the altars, uh, plural, but in Hebrew and many other translations, the altar is actually a singular altar. It's the altar that God has provided to receive the sin offerings. And this altar, in, in Isaiah's vision, is falling apart. It's crumbling. Why? The, this altar is no longer being maintained because what has happened is that God has sent His perfect unrivaled, unmatched sacrifice. And it is looking forward to Jesus. And because of the perfect sacrifice, there needs to be no longer a follow-up to that sacrifice, that there needs no longer repetition of the sacrifice, so that the altar in Jerusalem now lies obsolete. It no longer needs to be maintained, and it is crumbling. That's the picture. And then it goes on to say, And no ashram or incense altars, different word for altar, and this time it's plural. No ashram or incense altars will remain standing. Because God has sent His Son. Because He has offered His perfect sacrifice for which there can be no replacement, no follow-up, no repetition. And in that sacrifice of Jesus Christ, The idolatrous hearts of God's people have been turned. And there is no longer worship of idols. There is no longer divided devotions. But the people who once served idols, now they are devoted to God and they bear fruit for His glory. That's how God's people become fruitful. And in view of this, this is how Isaiah ends. Listen for the trumpet sound. Listen for the trumpet sound. Now, Isaiah's message is soul healing. Because what he told his contemporaries, and what he tells us is this, that no length of time And no strength of opposition can ever make God forsake his purpose. Now for you and me, the passing of years often make us forget. And for you and me, the passage of time softens our will and our resolve, but not with God. God presses on toward his goal. One generation after another, through the ages, through the years, God presses on. He does not waver. He does not change his mind. And he is never frustrated. And you and I, when we meet stiff opposition and hindrance, we may be disheartened and give up, abandon our goals and dreams and desires, but not with God. The serpent may put up a determined resistance to hinder God's purpose, but as we read in Philippians 1.6, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. At the day. He's talking about the same thing that Isaiah is talking about. That day. At the day of Jesus Christ. You know what that's telling us? The Lamb is mightier than the Leviathan. That's what Isaiah is telling us. And that's what Paul tells us that's what Scripture tells us. Leviathan, although we do not exactly know to what creature it actually referred to, but it was obviously so terrifying, so fear-inducing, that it served as a fitting metaphor and symbol for the greatest power of darkness. But that Leviathan is nothing before the innocent, pure, Lamb of God. And that is why Isaiah longs for the day of God's power because the day of God's power is also the day of great glory for God and joy for us. In that day, the Lord will thresh out the grain and you will be gleaned one by one, O people of Israel. It's a very tender scene uh, because God personally gathers each soul one by one. Do you remember a few chapters ago how we we saw that God will come to every one of us one by one and wipe away every tear from our eyes one by one? And here it's that same kind of thing. On the day of Christ, on the day of glory, God will gather every soul that has trusted Him and every soul that has longed for Him. And one by one, He will gather them as the harvest of His own long labor. One by one, He knows everyone. And He holds every soul dear. One by one, He will call them into glory, and one by one, He will call them into joy. Isn't that amazing? He knows you. He knows every one of you. One by one, each and every one of you, you are dear to Him. You are what He has labored for for generations and generations. And on that day of glory, He will call you by name. He will gather you one by one. He will wipe away every tear from your eyes, and one by one, He will say, Come into my glory. Come into my joy. Come into my home. And Isaiah says that, In that day, a great trumpet will be blown. Now, you might know that uh, the Bible mentions a few great trumpet calls. Um, we hear of it first in Leviticus chapter 25. It's the, uh, on the, the day of Jubilee, the trumpet sounded on the day of atonement. It set every prisoner free. All debts were canceled. In Exodus chapter 19, following their exodus, the great trumpet call called people to approach God their Redeemer, their Savior. And of course, First Thessalonians chapter 4. On that day, a tr- great trumpet call announces the return of Christ. So which trumpet is Isaiah talking about? Is it the Exodus trumpet? Is it the Jubilee trumpet? Or is it the tr- uh, trumpet of Jesus' return? Well, it's a trick question because it's all of the above. <laughs> you see, because... What God will do on that day, it is so rich and so significant that not one earthly event can fully capture the significance and the glory of it. So throughout the Bible, we hear trumpet call announcing deaths forgiven, prisoners set free. And we hear the trumpet sound calling sinners into God's presence without fear. And we hear the trumpet call when Jesus returns to receive All of us as his bride, as his friend, as his disciple, as his body. It's all of the above. Because on that day when the trumpet sounds, we finally become what we were created to be. We finally receive our glory and our inheritance. And on that day, we finally receive joy that will never be taken away. And what Isaiah tells us is that whether there remain only a few hours before the trumpet call, or many years before the trumpet sounds, and regardless of the serpent's attack and opposition, God will finish his good work. And the history as we know it, it's the history of suffering, it's the history of shame. And pain, history as we know it will end. And then something new will begin. And that something, that new thing that begins, we hardly have words to describe it except we know that when that something new begins, it will only be glorious, it will only be joyful. And it will only be healing to our souls. And there is nothing that anyone can do to stop that. There is nothing that anyone can do to stop the day of Christ. The Lamb is mightier than the Leviathan. Amen. Now let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for the hope that you give us amidst our trials, our suffering, our shame, and our pain, and we long with eager expectation the glorious day when Jesus, he will return and receive glory and honor that he deserve, And we, we who are in Christ, will receive also glory and joy. So, Father, we pray, would you strengthen us and sustain us against that day. Keep us from faltering, keep us from stumbling until we are presented to you blameless, full of glory and joy. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.